Hi up and welcome to the Temple of Blair. This is a conversation with Atrophy vocalist Brian Zimmerman. Atrophy are an Arizona-based thrash metal band uh, who had two records with Roadrunner Records, Socialized Hate in 1988 and Violent by Nature in 1990. So this is kind of like the early days of the US office. So Brian kindly gives his time to the Temple of Blair to talk about his relationship with the label, as well as the band's more recent activities. You can support the band on their Facebook page and their Bandcamp page, and you'll find that we jump straight into it on this one. So let's get to it. One, two, fuck shit up. You know, we signed in 1987 uh, for a seven album deal. Um, and our first record was $25,000. Now, that was to go to, you know, recording, blah, 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 and picking our producer. Um, so, and our next label, they bumped it up a little bit more. Next, next uh, one was more, even more. Mm. But you know they, uh, uh, you know they were getting kind of pushy towards the third record, and we weren't ready. Mm. We were not ready, and they said, "We don't give a shit. Get in the studio now. We want to hear what you got." Right. And so it it was a really weird time in music because of grunge coming on, mm-hmm. and uh, metal kind of losing favor yeah and i i I do think they kind of wanted to get involved you know where the money was of course the reason i ask is i'm dealing with them right now as a matter of fact um yeah so so the way it happened was when i started this four years ago we never got statements we never knew what our our budget was um and we'll get into that with gloria um, but we never got any of that crap. Mm. So when I walked away from the band in 92, um, I had no information what was sold, uh, money, any of that crap. So mm. now um, I want to button that part of my history up and move forward. And um, so I I just recently got everything released digitally through Ra- Road Racer. Mm-hmm. And I finally started getting some statements from them, but I don't have album, cassettes, CDs, all that stuff. So, yep. So you're starting the audit then? Yep, I am. Yeah. It, it's a it's a shady business, man. Yeah. It's there's a lot of dark areas where if you you know I, you said you were signed to a label. I'm not signed to anyone. I'm just doing this because my metal head. <laughs> and it's interesting. Oh, okay. So so back then, you know. If you weren't business minded and, you know, we were just we were young, we were hungry and you lose sight of the business aspect Mm. and doing this again. I need to know what we're going to sell, how much money's going out, going in and really do it differently this time. You know, yeah, yeah, it's a different world this time because there's more money in metal than there ever has been. And no, it doesn't seem like it. But it, it really is. I mean, in the last 10 years, we've come out of this weird saturation phase with all the streaming and things like that. And especially with metal, the market's more collector-based and it's more tangible-based. So you'll see yeah. like what's happening tomorrow, right? It's Cannibal Corpse. And Cannibal Corpse are dropping their new album tomorrow. All their pre-order bundles all sold out. And that's all... That's fucking... Yeah, yeah. That's metal blade working to a demand supplying to a demand and it's all tangible vinyl brick and mortar stuff because that's what metal edge want they want the feel and the look of it 
So in that respect, that kind of collector vibe is the thing that yep. sells in the metal community. And that's why it's, it's kind of a, an interesting time, I think. So, so yeah, on that, um, that's another thing. So Metal, metal Minds bought um, a part of our collection back in 2006 and re-released it. Um, I have had more fans ask me for copies of what you just said. We want vinyl. We want we want the real deal. You know, digital's nice and all that. But so I'm trying to get to a place where I can get uh, socialized hate re-released and violent by nature released just like that vinyl. You know, special order stuff. So I totally agree with you. Yeah, yeah. It's, I think it's a ma- and that's the stuff you're doing now in terms of the audit. Part of the the Roadrunner deal was typically that the label would have the IP and the copyright for a long time. And some of the yep. bands now, as in I was speaking to uh, Takis Kinnis from Realm, who, are, yeah, who actually featured in your story because of the split. Um, we think, and I, I won't speak for him, but their copyright returns to him and to the band after a set period, meaning soon if not already, he'll be able to go, all right, cool. I can throw some money at this now. I've got the, I've got the IP back. I've got the masters back. I can now just go and do whatever the fuck I want with it without having to get anyone sign off. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I believe that period's 20 years, but I need to clarify that with them before I move forward. I'm not going to throw money at something and then have them go, Oh, wait, wait, wait. You know? So I believe it is 20 years on, on uh, artistry and stuff like that. So Mm-hmm. do you know differently it, it depends on the contract that's that's what i know so they might okay. ask for it in perpetuity forever and ever and ever and some managers might go fuck that we want it to be 25 years or whatever so it depends on what's what's on that piece of paper you know from right. 1980 fucking seven <laughs> okay in terms of recent activities i know you guys were on tour last year until the pandemic hit but since right. you've reformed there's been an album in the works. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how far that's gone yet. So can you give us an update on what Atrophy have been up to for the past few years? So, yeah, on uh, last March, um, we were in the midst of a tour. We, you know, we all agreed that we were going to, you know, accept it because that was booked six months before uh, COVID hit. And we had a long talk about it. If, you know, if something happens and shit hits the fan, we got to get out. And lo and behold, uh, our, I believe our fourth show, eighth day in, uh, Trump said, you know, we're going to close the borders down. So we had to get out of Europe in 24 hours. After playing the show, you know, we had to go from, I believe it was Nuremberg back to Munich, try to rebook our flights and get home. So it was, uh, it's been just a uh, absolutely crazy year. And you know, not only that, I had South America booked and North America booked. Um, so, yeah, we lost out on all that. But I'm not bitching because a lot of people had it worse than we did. So, yeah, I saw um, I saw Anvil in uh, Halifax, the real Halifax, UK Halifax. Um, right. And that was the last night of their. Well, it wasn't meant to be, but it was the last night of their tour, because as soon as they finished the gig, they were like, got to get back on the plane now, even yeah. though I had like five or six more dates to do which is right pretty- and i think we had 20 left so Fuck. and we took all our merchandise over there so you know we're uh, heading back with 
boxes of shit and you know we anticipated on selling out and we were actually doing really well so yeah it's part of the music business i guess and or it is now yeah yeah so how's the uh, the new record coming on i've seen i've seen clips i know that you, have, you had a a video on your youtube channel from a couple of years ago riptide yeah so uh that was right before we were uh, getting ready to leave and i asked the guys would you please go in the studio and give me one really good song uh, recorded well and they wanted to go in and do three and mm -hmm. i said okay so uh we got three but i released uh, riptide and that is uh, it wasn't recorded quite up to what i would think it should be uh, but it was a, all done live in the studio so um we we decided to put it out and it seemed to uh do okay and uh yeah, uh, in the future, they'll be better recorded. <laughs> I think one of the things about metal as well is sometimes there's a almost like a virtuosity to the rawness of a recording anyway. Especially, I mean, I, have you guys got a label at the minute? Did Was that was that recording funded? Um, no, we did that ourselves. Um, yeah. in, the, in the midst of all this, you know, we've been trying to do this without a label. Yeah. So we've been doing our own merchandise. We've been, you know, trying to do everything without a label. And that's been quite in interesting to navigate in itself. Um, and that goes for managing and everything else. So it's it's a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, is it interesting looking at what the other side did now? Yeah. What, yeah. <laughs> it, it's uh, it ain't no joke. It's a uh, it, it's a lot of work. Mm. Mm. Well, hopefully um, the shopping around will be be productive, and hopefully the album will be released in in. in, it, in um, since then, we we've had a few bites, um, uh, but I would like to get something out that's uh, very well recorded, so they can really hear how the band sounds in the studio. Um, and I think we'll I think we'll be successful at doing that. I think the, another interesting thing there is, in terms of what the band sounds like in the studio, what you sound like live, it's interesting that it's been 20, no, wait, it's been 30 years since a lot of the live uh, sort of footage has been available. You know, like all those shows from like 30 years ago, your voice doesn't seem to have deteriorated in any particular way. And I'm not doing that just to blow smoke up your ass. I always find it quite remarkable. There's you, there's Dave King from Battle Axe, there's um, Guido from Cyclone. When you hear like any recent footage of them, it's just incredible. It gives me hope as a younger man. Um, it, it's, you know, and I'm, I'm guessing, I'm not 100% sure, but we were kind of fortunate and I got to take a break then I went and did vocal training and really learning how to breathe. Right. And so I think if anything, I technically am a stronger singer. I don't know about better, but um, I think that really helps because when we were young, we were just out there on running on adrenaline, you know, and it was, but thank you very much for that compliment. <laughs> you quite, it's just, it's just a good observation, especially when, I, I don't know, man. It's like, I, I haven't got my thoughts articulated on this point yet, but it's like, I think traditionally people think metal is like a young man's game. And I think now when you see bands like Atrophy, bands like Satan, bands like Cyclone, all these other guys just coming out of the woodwork and going, right, we've we've been working in the offices for 30 years now. We're now back to wanting to play the clubs again. It's 
it's becoming, it's an emerging market for a different demographic. Yeah. And I find that really interesting, compelling and hopeful. So I, I do too. I totally agree with you. Mm. And I like these bands who can come out and, and as you said, sound like they did back then. It's, it's remarkable. Yeah. I mean, I had a big part of cool. the, the tech as well. Um, now you don't have to worry about how the kick drum is going to sound anymore because it's fairly simple to mix it, especially in a live setting. 60 yes. hertz, ramp it up, float around, try and get your pop somewhere up 10 to 2 to 4K. There you go. We've done it. But maybe that's right. just aesthetic. But anyway, let, let's move on. So I want to talk about the chemical dependency demo. Um, yes, sir. Quality-wise, I found that really good. I mean, when you compare it to... Um, uh, socialized hate it's like there's a clear production comparison to be made but right. i quite like the vocals on the demo because they're a bit clearer but it does sound a bit thinner but i want to talk about the 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 artwork for it because i don't know who's lewis drake md there's a story behind that um so yeah there's kind of a story behind the whole thing so um we as we were coming along i had written the song chemical dependency um, I was a clear uh, non-advocate of using drugs at that point in my life. <laughs> and I was sitting in the doctor's office and I saw a Time magazine article and it had a really beautifully painted picture of a man and the, his reflection was that skull. And so I kind of took it a step further and I'm somewhat of an artist and I went home and I sketched it up. And our bass player said, hey, man, I know a, a local um, artist and he can draw it up for us. We gave it to him and unbeknownst to me, till I saw the final product, he put the, the, the tag on the desk. And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so inside we had to put, uh, you know, fictional character because we didn't want to get sued because there was actually some doctor named Lewis R. Drake out there. Wow. So that's how that came about. <laughs> wow crazy so you, you could have been sued by mr drake or dr drake <laughs> well you have to think about those things i guess yeah so uh, i saw an interview with you uh i can't remember when it was filmed it must have been a few weeks ago um but you said after your first show so obviously the demo comes out then you have your first show and you have three labels chomping at the bit how yep. how does that level of engagement happen did you just print like a thousand copies of the, the demo and sent it hither and dither so okay so we put a lot of thought in you know at that time there were so many bands coming out uh chris likens was a very smart individual and i don't think i'm stupid by any stretch of the imagination so we put a lot of thought in what we were going to do to make it a little bit different so what we did is we uh, printed 500 copies of this and instead of going to the labels we marketed we would go to uh, our local convenience stores or bookstores and find um, uh, Metal Mania, all these great magazines, Kerrang. Mm -hmm. And that was our main, and we just shipped them all out. I put my name on the back of this cassette and it was, um, it was remarkable. I, Don K from Kerrang gave us, I believe a 10 out of a 10 and I, I don't want to be misquoted here, but I think Metallica came out about that time and he gave him the, them the same rating. Yeah. And so that created this huge buzz. 
And there's certain people in the business that um, the record labels, I guess, respect and listen to. And that created a showcase for us. And it, it was remarkable. That was our second show. And that was in Phoenix. Oh, so it was a showcase. So it was like it was like a deliberate this is it wasn't just so you in a club and the labels were just hovering around. It was a deliberate, all right, this is the band and this is what we can do based on what everyone has seen. Yes. Yes. Oh, okay, cool. Back in the days when that was um doable, I guess. It was um, doable back then, yeah. It's interesting the timing because as you say, yeah, Metallica was out and Justice for All was out. So Thrash had made Thrash was like an established thing by that point. But the atrophy sound is kind of, I, I think it's like a prelude to what we'd call now party thrash. It's kind of, it's fast, it's energetic, it's powerful, but it doesn't take itself too seriously. And when you lower the stakes like that, it makes it more accessible, I think. And I think that's one of the interesting flavors that you don't get from a lot of thrash at that time. So it doesn't surprise me like that individuals like Don K would attach to themselves to that. You know what I mean? Right. I. Um, we, we did want to be serious, um, but we did not want to be forceful um, mm, and take yeah. ourselves way too serious because I, I think you, I think everything you said is correct. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I might be put pigeonholing you a little bit by calling it sort of proto-party thrash, but that, you know, you do have a song called Beer Bong, so. Th that's right, and that's why we did that song. It was, you know, because most metalheads, they listen to metal, they drink beer. So, and that's was what, you know, we, we were going to college at the time and that was our big thing is buy as much cheap beer as you possibly could and beer bong it, you know, yeah. and get as intoxicated as you could. <laughs> so, yeah, good times. <laughs> Do you still find yourself doing beer bongs at gigs now? Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Can you remember what other labels were trying to buy at that showcase? So we, obviously you had Roadrunner there. Do you remember who else was there? Uh, Metal Blade and I believe Capital was there. Oh, wow. And so we did get offers um, from, a, I guess, all three of them. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as you look at money and as, you know, we'll get into the management later. But uh, so we talked to the, our manager and we kind of wanted to go for one label or I'm sorry, one album. But uh, Roadrunner offered us road racer offered us seven albums and that's kind of unheard of mm. and they kind of uh so we i i believe we went back at them and said hey we would do it if you gave us the bigger distribution which mca came uh on board at that time mm -hmm. and it was kind of a no-brainer yeah yeah the distribution's massive as in as in in terms of in terms of the impact that metal has on the United States, especially at that time, post-1986, yep. is fucking massive. I was speaking to Alan Becker from Important Record Distribution, who obviously were MCA, but they were mega forces. They were metal blades and things. And it's the relationship that the distributors have to the retailers. It has such a profound effect on exactly how much circulation a record will get and exactly how it will be sold. And it's... Right. Yeah. And I know... Um, there was a deal with MCA between Roadrunner and MCA. It might've been on the RC imprint. I can't remember. Um, I should really brush up on that if I'm doing the history of Roadrunner, but 
Do you remember who it was from Roadrunner who signed you? Was it Holly Lane or was it Monty Connor? So I remember, um, it, it, it's kind of weird. I remember Monty Connor being involved, of course, and his name's Case, right? Yeah. Okay, so I believe Case uh, uh, contacted us originally, and then Monty Connor was, I believe, working Roadrunner in America, and that was in New York. Um, so I never really met either one of them before, and we had talked a little bit. It was mostly through our management. And we were getting ready to go into, uh, we had gone out to Hollywood, California to record our album. And uh, we got a phone call and he asked to talk to me and that's Monty Connor. Mm -hmm. And I, I said, hey, Monty, how's it going? And he's like, oh man, he's like, I just love your voice. Uh, you remind me of uh, uh, the first singer for Iron Maiden. <laughs> and I was like, oh, thank you. I, you know, thank you for that. I, I, I couldn't see the correlation, but I, Paul Diano. Yeah. So later in life, you know, as I, as you grow as a musician, you kind of listen and you're like, yeah, well, maybe, you know, but I was just, you know, thrilled to hear from anybody at the label at the time. So that was wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting comparison because, um, Monty before Roadrunner worked at Shatter Records and Sh one of Shatter Records, they didn't have a lot of bands, but one of them was Paul Diano's Battle Zone. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, so there was, I guess there was a familiarity there. He's probably more familiar with his voice than we give him credit for. <laughs> I, he's a sharp guy. He's a really, really sharp guy. If, if that dude knows music, like, nobody. I mean, he's, he's awesome. Yeah, but really, I think Monty's, Monty's gift for finding bands, it's largely down to the networks that he built in the 80s. So everything yeah. from like Roadrunner onwards, he's just moving into Case's house. Case has got like this really profound business infrastructure, which allows Monty to just be himself and make money doing it. And I yeah, think that's, that's, that's exactly right. You are so correct in that. And, and to his credit, he had a really, uh, he had a really good ear for hearing uh, hidden talents and bands. Yeah, uh, Annihilator, uh, one of them, and of course Sepultura. And I mean, I could go on and on, mm. but you know, I, I think a lot of bands or a lot of labels at that time may have said, you know, it's to this or to that, you know, Sepultura would have been too heavy or, you know, but he, I mean, he just had a vision, I think that, uh, and he could hear, man, I'd love to hear these guys in the studio, you know, really well recorded. Yeah. I think he just, he just knew it so well the hard work had been done up to that point and he was just in a position to go, all right, I can see where we are now with this act. I can see two years down the line. And it's just the sheer experience of being in part of the metal community. And it's interesting you mentioned Don Kay because Don Kay, uh, Borovoy Kurgin, or Kurgan, I don't know how to pronounce it, the guy who invented blabbermouth.net. Yeah. Those two and Monty is what Monty refers to as the three musketeers. Because they were just like best mates who would just like give each other all the bands and all that's how that was how the network sort of formed and that's how if you formed a band in 1986 and you did two gigs Monty would have known about it because of all those three guys working in collaboration. You are right. Um, they had such a uh, uh, a hand in what was going on at the time. They had their ear to the ground, and I'm telling you, I really credit Don K for getting us signed and getting us. And putting the word out because 
I think you're right. I think there was a lot of respect amongst those people at that time. Yeah. So, yeah. How did you end up doing the split with Realm? It, it, it's kind of weird. Um, and I did not find all this stuff out until later. And m- recently there was 13, count them, 13 compilations put out with us on it. One of them, uh, I guess, was the biggest selling thrash album of all time in a compilation form. And that was Stars on Thrash. That was Slayer, Us, uh, Circuit Reich, uh, a bunch of big bands on there. So we didn't really have a hand in that. I think I think their thinking on that was, look, we got these two bands. Let's market them together. Maybe they don't like Realm. Maybe they don't like Atrophy. But if we market it together, then I think we got something here. And that's the genius behind those guys. You know, it's a two-for-one deal. There's also the we've got to think about where the label was at the time because the US office had just opened. Right. Yes. So the, it'd been a European operation up until that point. So you you guys came in at the infancy. So all the bands that they'd signed up to that point were big in Europe and the infrastructure was in Europe. So there's probably some kind of um strategy in the background thinking well we need to take the american ip to break the american market because that's where the money is made in that territory that's where you want to have the biggest album that's where you want to sell the gold and the platinum so it could also be a matter of okay we've got these two bands from you know in, in the united states let's make them the unit you know it could also have been obviously that's complete conjecture but i think it, it does sort of shine a light onto where the label was at the time which was baby steps in new york I, I think you're right on that. Yeah. Uh, so we talked a little bit about the deal previously, um, a little bit before. Uh, what did I miss from there? Uh, you said seven albums. The IP we talked about, we're unsure as to how long they've retained the copyright, but I'm sure we'll find out in the coming months. Um, yep. Do you remember what they offered you in terms of tour support? In, t- in t- tour support? Um yeah, it wasn't really high. I can tell you that. Mm. So what we did, and we were very fortunate, we got to sign with a, a company called Great Southern. Great Southern did all our merchandise. Now they would follow us behind. They did most big thrash bands at that time. So we also got a, I believe it was $10,000 uh, tour support. And we, I think we got the same from uh, our label. So that enabled us enabled us to go out on tour and do it right you know we had a Mm -hmm. tour bus we got to go out with sacred reich um on our first tour Mm -hmm. and it was very comfortable it was a lot of hard work you know it was night after night after night Mm -hmm. but you know that's what we were there for so (laughs) you know it's all good it partying hard and uh and and just hitting the road and and going for it you know (laughs) And, yeah. and they, I believe they offered us the same uh, right after that to go to Europe, too. Wow. So we did have some tour support. It wasn't huge, but it was helpful for sure. You were, you were looked after. Yeah. 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 Uh, did you have any relationships with anyone at the label other than Monty? Well, I'm just trying to get a picture of who was in the office at the time. If you, know. um, I, I do remember. I don't know how uh, uh, important she was in the office. A woman named Lisa. You might know more about it than I do. She was, uh, I think, 30-ish. Anyways, Mm. but... uh, I know there was a Lydia. Yeah, so I, I, you know, 
when we were on tour, basically we went up to a, a road runner, road racer, and we met everybody and they took us into their vault. And I do remember that. And they said, you can have, you know, pick CDs. And I was like, woohoo, you know, and it, so we didn't spend a lot of time there because we had a show that night and we went from uh, the label to sound check. And then we went directly into the show. So we didn't spend a lot of time there. I've never heard of a vault before. Yes. Can you, can you elaborate on what the vault is? Okay. So this vault is, it, it's just like a back room and it's just stocked with every band. You know, they always had extras of, so you can go in there and just kind of pick through everybody they had signed from, I think King Diamond even. You know, because I was a big fan of King Diamond back then. And I was mm -hmm. like, hell yeah. And, you know, we just kind of, and I, you know, I kind of leaned towards the more obscure band. So I wanted to pick a few that I hadn't heard of and take them out. So that was the big vault. And it was, you know, anything free for a musician was just <laughs> fabulous. So, but, you know, we're in there just raiding it up. So, yeah, it was yeah. really fun. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So when we, so the, the deal has been signed um you're gonna go in and do socialized hate how did the uh bill matoya link come from was that from the label was that from you guys was there a network thing so uh we didn't really have a full understanding of you know what do we need to do to get this done and uh we'll touch on this a little bit later uh so me and Chris had driven up to go see Nuclear Assault and Sacred Reich. Sacred Reich was managed by a woman called Gloria Bujanowski. We handed our tape to Gloria. She became our manager sometime later. But anyways, um, so she, as managing Sacred Reich, she had already worked with Bill um, and them. And she, she kind of offered us and leaned us in that direction and I know Bill did Hell Awaits, and I have to say it's still not my favorite recorded album. <laughs> Sounds like it was recorded in a cave, but he got marketably better from back then to, to like ignorance. And I was just, I was like, yeah, this, this would be really cool, you know? And I thought he had a really, really good sound back then, especially yeah. for the time. That's interesting, though, in terms of the Gloria connection. It was just a matter of you went up to her, gave her the tape, and she went, you are mine now. This is this is now, we are now a unit. It, it, um, she kind of ran her business that way. Um, she, uh, she had a vision of, um, you know, under if you were under her, mm. she kind of had, I, I think, uh, an idea already in store of what she wanted. And so... Yeah, she was a huge asset to us. There's no doubt. I've not heard much about her apart from how she ran with the Sepultura guys. How was she as a manager? Was she a stern taskmaster or was she like a she, was she a big picture person? Was she open door policy? How what was her management style? Was she easy to get on with? So, you know, Gloria was older than we were. So we always I'm not gonna say mom, you know, she wasn't our mom. But she is a very stern person. She knows what she wants. Um, I always knew that she uh, had our best interest at heart. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt because 
in the end, I think she knew that we were making her money or didn't make her money. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, she she was tough. But, you know, that's who you want working for you. Um, she had, you know, she had quite a few kids. I think she had five children at the time. And she went on tour with us. Um, she was she was awesome. I mean, she's uh, she was a very hardworking woman. And one thing I'll say about it, she knew everybody mm. like one day we were over in Europe and Lemmy pops up on the bus. And I'm like, holy shit, that's Lemmy from another time we went out to uh, we were out in California and all of a sudden Metallica walks backstage and I'm like, what the fuck? Who? What? Sorry. That's <laughs> who, cool. who is this? Like, this is great. But she knew uh, uh, Jason Newstead from uh, Metallica at the time. And the boys came down and they all said hello. And it was, you know, they saw our show and it was just unbelievable. So she was very hooked up, very well connected in the business. Wow. Uh, yep. Absolute asset. Fair enough. Fair enough. So when uh, you're recording Socialize Hate and, and um, Vile by Nature, what's, what's the input from the label? Apart from putting up the money and, and hooking you up with Bill, what are they trying to get involved in the sound? Is Monty on the phone going, yeah, too many hi-hats or... Crazy question. Uh, first album, not so much. Uh, I think he kind of heard our sound and kind of knew where we were going. Mm -hmm. Second album, uh, we're done. We're back in Tucson, and I get a phone call. I want Brian on a plane this weekend, and he's going to fix all the background vocals. It sounds like little kids in the background, and I want that the balls of, you know, of my voice. And he, so I had to fly back out and hang out with Bill for the weekend and go out and fix all the stuff that the group did. Cause he just, he absolutely hated it. So um, he was pretty good for the, for the most part, but I do remember that. Uh, so, hey man, yeah. the guy, guy knows what he wants to hear. Yeah, I, he absolutely. Yeah, I guess it's like I guess it's not necessarily a creative input, and they're not trying to lead the band astray. It's just it's a mixed thing, isn't it? And I guess that was a, I, in his head the way to fix it. I, I think uh, I think he heard something wrong in the in the recording, and it it bothered him enough to spend the money because I I know on both albums we came up uh, under budget, so um, you know you might as well put me on a plane and have him go go do it again. So yeah, it's all good. I don't. They they weren't so, you know. Look at the bands they had at that time. These they had a lot of crazy bands, and I don't think they wanted to get involved in, in the creative aspect so much at that particular time in the business. So, I guess it was kind of like when they'd acquired those acts in the first place, that was their bit done. Again, it's kind of Case just builds the infrastructure, and he just get makes sure the kids are in. Let the kids do what they're going to do. The house is, you've got the safety pins and things on the cupboard so they can't get to the bleach. You've got like um, saran wrap around the corners of the couch. No one's going to hurt themselves here. Just let the metalheads be metalheads in this commercial infrastructure I've built. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. So that speaks to the, how was the overall relationship throughout? Did you ever have to ask for anything more? Or did, were they always, were they always fairly hands off? They were pretty hands off. So um, our 
when we got back from uh, Socialized Hate Tour, our guitar player, Chris Likens, always told us from the beginning, look, I'm going to medical school if the band doesn't take off. Yeah. Now, when he left the band, um, I think we had about three to six months of, you know, trying to get stuff going to make a new record. We get a phone call from Gloria and they said, the label wants you guys in the studio now. Mm. And I, I was thinking, what? Like, what do you mean now? Like, we're not even ready. And I remember very clearly, we don't care. We want to hear what you guys are going to sound like without Chris. And so we were so unprepared and we wanted to do what the label asked. You know, we were kind of their bitch at their t- <laughs> at that time. So we went in and it wasn't good. You know, it wasn't going to be good. I, I didn't even have lyrics written for, I think, two of the songs. Mm. And I remember getting a phone call uh, right after that. And they said, uh, the label's done with you, man. I was like, what? No second chance? Like, I was I was kind of blown away. I was kind of hurt. But, you know, that's the music business, you know? Yeah. You, you have to stay on your A game on this and in this business. Otherwise you will get swept underneath the carpet really quick. Mm, yeah. Sometimes it's, it's a mercy as well. I think sometimes, I mean, I'm, I'm not in a position I've never been signed with Roadrunner then dropped after two albums. So I can't comment, but imagine if you'd been dragged through your thirties, just like with a mi- uh, diminishing returns and a soured relationship. Sometimes it might, you know, cut, ripping the bandaid off as it is, is probably the, sometimes the best way to go about it. Right sometimes i don't know i don't know yeah so would you do any of it differently because it looks like like the relationship itself and the and it seems to have all been fairly amicable oh absolutely um i have no man if i heard what we did i probably would have had questions too i thought it was a little unfair to rush us into the studio um i think they they could have done it a little bit better but Like I said, grunge was coming on at that time and music was changing. And Monty's a smart guy. He's really smart. And why put money and time into this band uh, if you want, if you can put your money somewhere else? I have no hard feelings. I'm, you know, he's friends of mine on Facebook. I admire the guy. And, you know, it's just business, man. You know, we made two amazing records with Road Racer, Roadrunner, and I, I'm so blessed to do that, you know? Yeah. It's all good. Awesome. That makes me really yep. happy. And it's warming to, to know that. Between 1990 and when did you riff on the band? 2015, was it? Uh, yeah, right around there. It was a crazy story. So um, I received, I, I hate Facebook. I'm not a Facebook guy. Yep. Um, especially back then. I didn't want to be known because I knew people knew who I was and they wanted to friend me about the band. And I'm like, I don't want to deal with that stuff. I wanted it in the past. So I'm on Facebook and I'm in a local band and I tell these guys, look, do not tag me in anything. Don't put my picture up. Lo and behold, literally that night, my drummer tags me and ping, ping, ping. I'm like, what the? So it, one in particular is from this guy. And he's like, hey, man, my name is John Thomas. 
I started an atrophy uh, Facebook page. And I was wondering if, would you do a show? And I I just laughed it off. And he kept bugging me, man. I mean, he was persistent. (laughs) So I hadn't spoken to my drummer in 30 years. I pick up the phone. I call him. I'm like, I want to know who this guy is and what what's his deal? And he said, oh, he's good. You know, he's, he's a nice kid. Um, that Very good intentions. So this guy tells me if we get back together, our first show is going to be uh, playing with Testament, Hyrax, Nuclear Assault at the Maryland Death Fest in 2016. Oh, cool. I'm like, huh, that's pretty interesting. <laughs> so, you know, the Haunted's there. I mean, some of the greatest fans. I'm like, shit. All right, tell you what, if you guys can put together the band and it sounds excellent, I'm in. So the intention was two shows, just two. And I wanted to step out. And, you know, I had really short hair at the time. I just didn't look the part anymore. So uh, we did it and we had overwhelming response and the offers kept coming and coming and coming and coming and you know, we've been kind of uh, just touring around ever since. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, that. man. It's cool. crazy. It's awesome. Yeah. Reflecting on Roadrunner and reflecting on the career, is there anything I might have missed? Is there any, any kind of reflections you want to make? You know, I, the only reflection I have is I didn't think they were a good label at the time. That In my mind, you know, at that particular time, I'm like, well, who is you know, who are these bands? Like, you know, I look at their names. I'm like, well, I don't really know these bands. They weren't Megadeth or, you know, the big bands that we know that were signed to the big labels. And so I was, I kind of questioned ever signing with them in the first place. And as, as time went on and they started picking up more and more bands like Sepultura, eventually Nickelback, and I'm not a fan of them, by the way, but I know they make, they make money for the label. So, you know, you, you, in hindsight, you look back and go, you know, they're in Europe, they're in the United States. And you look back at their catalog and you just go, holy shit. Wow. They were, they were really a huge label in the underground. Mm. And I think they, uh, they did an amazing job of getting bands that probably never would have been heard getting them signed and putting a different element out there so that's my take on that it's so cool because my my sort of take on it is obviously it's the same thing which is they did something really special we start there that's the foundation that's something we all know because we all see that little red logo and we go ah okay we have a relationship with that thing and then we go right so there's so more platinum records and gold records uh, as an independent metal label than any other one on the planet. That's remarkable in the way that it's going toe-to-toe with the majors. Sam Cowell's trying to put his foot in the door with his shitty TV shows and stuff like that. And there's fucking a, a Canadian dude with a guitar who can, who's selling you know 10 times platinum records, all this great stuff. And then you go, okay, well, that's the legacy of the label. What if that trajectory continued and what's this logical con- conclusion? And we can speculate on what that is. But to me, it's it's metal becoming effectively not normalized normalized is the wrong word but it has a seat at the table with everything else which it never used to do 
and never historically wants to do. So if we think of that as a logical conclusion to the trajectory that the label was on, and now it, it stopped because it was bought out by Warner, it makes me think the job is still outstanding and there's still work to be done. Therefore, what my generation can do is take the learnings from Roadrunner and how they went about their business and apply that to our wave of new bands coming up, a new wave of labels and things like that. Because I want to live in a world where Mel has a big seat at the table. Even if people don't want it to... Yeah, there's always going to be a version of the underground. There's always going to be a version of fringe death metal and thrash metal and things like that. But I want to live in a world where it's kind of normal and it's not seen as like a an alternative thing because that would be interesting. And I think that's 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 the area I'm in when I think about the legacy of the label I, and what it means. I think that has been, um, you know, I don't know how much you know about our band, um, you know, but ever since its inception, what I wanted to convey was, you know, we're not idiots. Mm. We're not shitty musicians. We are, uh, you know, we're socially relevant as far as uh, our songs and why it never became part of modern culture like you're talking about has always befuddled me because I was always the outsider kid. I didn't like, you know, the big hair and the, the glam bands. Dude, there was so much pussy at those shows. Sure, they're fun to go to, but, you know, to sit, sit there and watch somebody hit three chords, you know, she's my cherry pie. No knock on warrant. You did way better than I did. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, it, it's it's amazing. And I always wanted to see metal kind of um, a little bit more uh, accessible, you know, and not so frowned upon, about, you know, and, and other genres, you know. So anyways, that's my take. Dude, I think it's like, <laughs> I think we're, we're, we're arriving at the same destination, but from different landing strips. That's an, an yeah. analogy I like, because um, I think it really rep represents that that kind of dialogue. But yeah. That's awesome, dude. Okay, let's let's round this off with the final question, which is, have you ever seen a ghost? It's a Hail Mary question. Have I ever seen a ghost? I have never seen a ghost. Um, <laughs> I, have, I have been with uh, people that think they've seen a ghost, but I've never seen one. And I'm kind of one of those people that I'm intrigued by UFOs and stuff uh, out of the ordinary, but I never have. Have you? Um, I've had some weird things happen. I wouldn't say outright I've seen a ghost. I've always liked the mansions, the haunted mansions and stuff, and I've always wanted to do a ghost tour. And if I ever see one, I'll, I'll be the first to let you know. Yeah, yeah I have. Um, so I, I do have a dead guy buried in my front yard. Um, <laughs> at, I'm not even joking. Would you Tell like me to everything. see it? I, I have a tomb where two men are buried in a tomb in my front yard. Not joking. There's two questions I have. Well, actually, not two questions. One the one request is tell me everything and show me everything. And the second one is, what did that do to the value of the house? Um, I, so when I, I looked at the property, I, you know, I was like, so the man who, who was buried there was actually in the lake because it's a man-made lake. And they had to have a place to move it. And there was a sliver of land here. So they brought him up and set him here. So he was, he was buried initially in the lake or his name is Coin, his name is Coin Harvey okay. and William Harvey. And they're in a I guess it's about 16 by 16 white tomb. And 
I can show it to you here. Sweet. That is metal as fuck. Is that crazy? <laughs> yep. How many people can say they have a tomb in their front yard? I know it's not a ghost story, but it's 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 almost it's just incredibly metal to have a dead guy in your front garden. So why there? Was it just they had to find somewhere? That is so fucking metal, dude. <laughs> I don't know anybody. So I I did a I did a solo project and we did one song. It was called War Machine. I'm like, man, I really want to go film in a graveyard. I'm like, oh wait, I have a I have one right <laughs> right there, man. I just walk outside and go to the left. So yeah. Awesome. But cool, man. It was so cool talking to you, dude. I'm, yeah, I'm, man. Uh, really glad you're doing this. Thanks very much.